Hello, my name's Justin Clue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And this week, we're going weird, because we're not talking about a white Caucasian male director. <laughs> we're actually going to do a... We're going to do three white... <laughs> Caucasian male directors. Oh, that's true. And, and and technically a Japanese one as well. Yes, because we're going to be doing reappropriation in cinema. For that, we're going to talk about Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, What's Up, Tiger Lily, and the journals of Gene Seberg. Why did you want to do this subject, Will? Because this was all you. Um... That's a good question. I'm not quite sure. I think it's because I wanted to... Uh, Watch Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. Yes, it is. I know that when I was a kid, um, I think I was 11 years old when I rented Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, from the video store. Um, at that time, uh, I think kids that age are really excited in showing their superiority over things that adults have made. Like, uh, kid, if you can show a kid a so-bad-it's-good movie, they can laugh at it because, ha, why didn't Edward know that the tombstone looked like it was made of cardboard? I'm smarter than him. <laughs> I'm 11 years old. And Mystery Science Theater of the movie really kind of um, flattered that sense in me. But seeing it as a kid, it was an utterly mind-blowing experience. So was this me. the first iteration of the MST3K concept that you saw? Yes, it was. Because we didn't get the TV show on TV in Canada. Uh, later, I would see it on VHS uh, for sale. But... Uh, but yeah, this MST3K, the movie was at video stores. Uh, you, you, but let's talk first about a movie that really gave birth to the whole making fun of bad movies concept in film and reappropriating bad movies to create something new. That would be What's Up Tiger Lily Mm -hmm. from the uh, 1966, allegedly directed by Woody Allen, alleged child molester Woody Allen in his his first directorial credit, although I think he would dispute that. So this is a film that AIP bought a, um, you know, B-movie Japanese action picture filled with spies, uh, as Woody Allen himself would say, like, molestation. Raping and pillaging, he says in the opening scene, which is a joke that's maybe aged a bit, a bit poorly. But Henry G. Saperstein, who was president of American International Pictures at the time, had a relationship with Toho uh, in Japan you know, for giant monster movies and stuff like that. And Toho was like, hey, we James Bond movies are popular now. We decided we'd make one. And Henry Saperstein said, you dummies, I can't sell this movie. It's a spy movie with nothing but Japanese people in it. They would have easily sold it and dubbed it and released it. No, but instead, they went to the next level. He said, he said that people are just going to make fun of this movie if we play it. Aha, let's beat them to the punch. Let's get a trendy young comedian to redub all of the voices and create a wacky new story. And apparently he he claims he first went to Lenny Bruce uh, because originally they were going to release this to TV. Uh, and Lenny Bruce said, listen, man, I got to swear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm Lenny Bruce. Yeah, that's that's my brand. Yeah. Like if Lenny Bruce isn't swearing, it ain't the Brewster, yeah. as he liked to call himself. So uh, Lenny Bruce turned it down, or they didn't hire Lenny Bruce, and instead they went with the next best thing, Woody Allen. I'm baffled at how much Woody Allen's mug is plastered all over this movie. If you look up the poster of What's Up, Tiger Lily, it's just a cartoon drawing of his face. I think it might have been hard to sell this movie as a concept at the time. The idea of taking another movie and dubbing a new soundtrack on it well, actually, that should have been an easy concept to sell. It's kind of a great, it's a great idea for a you movie. You just make a, a a James Bond style poster, explosion, stuff like that. Put a brand new comedy from the mind of Woody Allen, whatever. And then people will go see it. Not just Woody Allen's 
face. That's what the poster was. It was just his face, Woody Allen, What's Up, Tiger Lily, and I think a little joke next to it. You would have no idea what this movie was about. So, uh, the spy movie that we see. So it is, And it starts with five minutes of unsubtitled spy stuff. Yeah, and then it cuts to Woody Allen and an interviewer sitting in, uh, in basically a study, and Woody Allen explains the concept of the film in his inimitable style. <laughs> and it's kind of a little bit disconcerting at first because Woody Allen, the jokes aren't coming as fast and furious as you would hope. It's like one shot with no cuts. Yeah. And it just kind of drags on and it's kind of setting you up for the actual movie that you're about to watch. Uh, this was the first Woody Allen movie I ever saw as a kid. Um, and I, I liked it. I still like it. It's a movie that's not quite as funny as you want it to be. You wish there were more jokes. Yeah. And when you watch it, I don't know how much they re-edited it, and I'm sure they did. I think they did a lot, because this movie's only 70 minutes long, even even with that new stuff they filmed. It's very formless, and you're like, why aren't there more jokes? Or, like, a lot of it is just characters screaming silly stuff while they're fighting. Well, well, basically, from what I understand, it was just Woody Allen and a room full of collaborators in a room. Um, Louise Lasser, in fact, was one of them. And they would run the movie, and basically Woody Allen would go, okay, someone's sitting down, give me, give me sit-down jokes. And then people would pitch <laughs> jokes, and then they would... And that that might be why the movie's plot doesn't really hang together. The plot is about uh, a secret agent, a James Bondian figure who has to find a secret recipe for the perfect egg salad. So, yeah, so that's hilarious. That's a, that's a joke right there. But you know, there are some there are some pretty solid jokes in this movie. There are, say. and the advantage that this one has over the, this Island Earth, which is the one that the Mystery Science Theater three thousand movie kind of spoofed, is that the Japanese film moves pretty fast, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff happening, so you can kind of get distracted, even that jokes don't hit every kind of second. I mean, the fact that they're dubbing this movie over another movie kind of handicaps them a little bit like mm-hmm. the jokes have to flow with with the lip syncing uh but th- there are some there are some bits that made me laugh like there's a scene at the end when uh there's a shootout and uh the guy's gun is jammed and then they have they dub him over have him say to the audience okay everyone in the audience who believes in fairies please clap along and if you clap enough my gun will be reloaded and i mean that's does. pretty funny it's pretty good i you know we did What's Up, Tiger Lily, but I think we should have done the ultimate overdubbed film, which is Kung Pao, Enter the Fist. Oh, I, can you believe I, I totally I, forgot about that? I, I, I was watching What's Up, Tiger Lily, and I'm like, I can't believe this is not the movie that I picked to talk about. That, w- that was the film by Bob Odenkirk, uh, director of Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, and the man responsible for all those like thumb movies. <laughs> that choked the video store shelves. If you were in a blockbuster <laughs> in the early 2000s, these movies like Bat Thumb or like Thumb to the Future. or Thumb Wars? Yeah, like all the Blair Thumb Project. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and, and I never saw any of these. No, I didn't either. Like, why would you? <laughs> um, but Bob Odenkirk like took a, an old Cantonese kung fu movie Starring Jimmy Wang Yu, and he in- digitally inserted himself in the in the movie, and like nobody even it was so weird that he starred in this movie because he had never starred in anything before. He uh, like wrote, directed it. Like, do you think he got this up the back of the thumb movies? That's the only I, way. I don't know, but like nobody knew who Bob Odenkirk was, and I remember when Kung Pao came out, it was just totally mysterious that <laughs> I this, remember... this comedy came out in two thousand theaters with this totally unknown bland guy. I remember at the time I was like, finally someone's sticking it to those crouching tiger hidden dragons <laughs> and showing them what what. Um did you see it when it played in theaters? No, I rented it at maybe fifteen years ago and I, I remember not thinking it was very funny. Ugh. 
It is hilarious. There's the part where there, he fights the cow, right? <laughs> oh, that's not funny. See, this is the thing about a Kung Pao Under the Fist. Any of the new footage that he shot, barring one scene where he has knocked over and over again in the nuts and then beaten to a pulp, is completely unfunny. A CGI Ali McBeal baby, yeah. um, a woman with one breast, him dodging, you know, Matrix-style cow milk shooting udders, not funny. Did you know the DVD has an entirely separate soundtrack? The DVD has a very funny commentary with the director and the producer. It has what they were saying on set, which are very, like, non-sequitur jokes about, like, pastries and stuff like that. And it also has an old British man reading the entire script for the film (laughs) in sync with the picture. You know what? I'm kind of coming around (laughs) to this movie now that you say that. That's funny. And Kung Pao was not a hit. (laughs) No. Well, because, like, why would it be? It's like... This this really juvenile parody of kung fu movies starring this not very charismatic guy who's not a, a comedian. He's not. He's 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 the director of. Ace, I remember the ads for Kung Pao totally sold it on the fact that it was by the director of Ace Ventura Two, which by that point was already kind of. At that point, I probably thought it was the superior Ace Ventura picture, but I have been proven incorrect. Um, but yeah, you know what's up, Tiger Lily? Getting back to to that fine film. That's a movie that Woody Allen has basically disowned because What's Up Tiger Lily was originally intended to be shown on television and then when they they when AIP thought it might be able to play in theaters they shot a bunch of new footage musical numbers with the love and spoonful. Yep. And if you know one thing about Woody Allen it's that he loves uh like 60s pop music. <laughs> So, I mean, Woody Allen used to go on tour with his 60s pop music band <laughs> playing um, pop flute, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why he disowns it. And he also, I read an interview with him where he said he thought it was a terribly juvenile exercise. Yes. W- which it is. Uh, it's a bit racist. Yes, very uh, much so. Yeah. <laughs> I love how the opening credits of the movie are a lot of a lot of still photos of scantily clad young asian women with a a cartoon of woody allen leering at them (laughs) i know and you know i'm not saying that life imitates art can you imagine living in a time where in the 60s to the late 70s or maybe it was the 70s to the 80s there was a daily newspaper woody allen strip oh yeah incredible that's how much that's how much of a cultural force he was (laughs) Oh, What's Up Tiger Lily has another great joke, I think, which is halfway through the movie, it cuts back to Woody Allen and the interviewer. And the interviewer says, now, Woody, the plot is getting uh, very complicated at this point. Could you provide a a brief moment of clarity for what's happening on screen? And Woody goes, no. And it cuts back to the movie. (laughs) That's a funny joke. That's a good joke. So I don't know. What's Up Tiger Lily? I I like it. It's it's fun. A bit racist. But Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. I mean, the show, MST3K, is really the standard bearer for... Um, I don't know, whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, What's Up Tiger Lily kind of defined the concept of taking a cheesy movie and adding new audio to it. But MST3K is... is Like making fun of movies. The, the definitive version. MST3K was very important to me growing up. Uh, I feel like uh, it wasn't to you, right? No. Uh, have we talked about this on another podcast before? I don't think so, but let's just, let's just talk about it. So, now. MST3K, um, when I was a kid... I my gateway into kind of cinephilia was a book called Cult Flicks and Trash Picks by v- the Video, Video Hound. Hound. The second edition, which was huge and had like Godzilla on the cover. Mm-hmm. I would go everywhere with this book to the point that I ripped it to tatters. Yeah. And MST3K, I remember 
I didn't get a very good review in the book, the movie version. Mm-hmm. And the concept of it, which I probably learned from that book because I didn't see it on TV. In the small town I lived, nobody else watched it. I never picked it up off the VHS uh, shelf. Always kind of dissuaded me to wanting to view it because it was a show that was making fun of other movies, which always seemed like something that I didn't really want to experience. And and you're like, all movies deserve respect. (laughs) Participation medals for everyone. (laughs) No, it was like... Kind of, why would I want to watch this? Like, it's not... I must have seen an episode at one point and not liked it. Um, and from there, like, I just kind of blanket Now, did you think it was... A, like, you're a, you're a movie buff. Did yes. you think that it's kind of like, oh, who are these, like, smug assholes coming in and making fun of... Sure, like, like, yeah. Like uh, movies. Kind of like uh, last week when we made fun of Francis Ford Coppola. It's like, who are these two yeah. assholes who think that they know more than this master? I mean, I think, you know, it, this isn't exactly this isn't exactly a new observation. But for a lot of people of, you know, Gen X or millennials, uh, Mystery Science Theater is kind of like what in the 50s those local monster hosts were. Yeah, because those monster hosts would poke fun at the movies that they're watching yeah. and kind of take the air out of them. But they would also expose people to like whole fields of movies that they would have had no idea about. I mean, I, I think a lot of people who are Gen X or Gen Y, you know, probably experienced Gamera for the first time through MST3K or Roger Corman movies. But the difference is that these horror hosts would treat these films like a joke, but people could still enjoy the films in the form that they're supposed to be mm-hmm. taken. While MST3K, I really doubt people watch some of those movies and think fondly of the films as films. I don't know. I mean, I, I beyond I, laughing at. I, them. I would say I would say that, like for myself, growing up, I think MST3K was just something that was like part of my development in appreciating sort of trash cinema or paracinema, and I think. Like, if you become enough of a fan of MST3K, you develop a fondness for the movies that they that they skewer. Do well, you? I Maybe I just I associate so, yeah. them with... Don't you this, feel, like, like, fondly about Manos, The Hands of Fate or something? No, I don't. That's not one that I feel very fondly for. Well, the movie I don't know itself. what to tell you. I don't think I've ever actually seen that episode. Okay. So, I mean, that, that could be another reason. I kind of got into the MST3K because I have friends that are really into it. And it really shaped them and their kind of tastes. So... A few years ago, we actually did a marathon where it was Joel versus Mike, and I was the sole judge where I would decide which episode I liked or didn't like, Mm -hmm. and uh, watching it there kind of made me really, you know, fall in love with it and really appreciate it for what it is. Well, the thing is, it's not just... There's a false impression about the show that it's just like snarky assholes making fun of a movie and tearing it down, but really what it is is a meta-commentary I mean, they don't, in most of the episodes, they don't really tear the movie apart unless it's an extreme case, like Space Mutiny or something like that. Hobgoblins. Hobgoblins is another one. Which are really mean-spirited. They're they're really harsh on that, but I mean, the movie deserves it. (laughs) Did you hear that the director was like genuinely hurt? by like their treatment because at the end they even take like a cardboard <laughs> cutout of the director and start like beating up on it well they also they also do a thing where like they pretend to interview the director and and they say are you on crack yeah <laughs> but a lot of it is just like taking the movie as an as a launching pad to tell jokes yes and then that's fine and their jokes are very dense a lot of the time yeah and a lot of them like you you know oftentimes you'll watch the show and uh there are so many references to obscure things that it might take a minute to find a joke that you will laugh at mm-hmm. because it, yeah. It, but at other, at other times I find that MST3K will have a zinger come out of nowhere that will make me laugh 
so hard that I would be like keeled over. So in MST3K, the movie, when I watched it with my friend as an 11 year old, there was a part where we had to pause the tape because we were laughing so hard. It was uh, during the big climax when it looks like there's a star that's that's falling in the sky or a spaceship or something. And one of them goes, oh, no, Tinkerbell's going down. Pull up, take. Oh, no. That made us laugh so fucking hard. I mean, it's one of those things, right? That, like, a lot of movies, when they get you folded over laughing that hard, when you tell it to someone else, they'll be like, that's Yeah, not, I know. That's not I, funny. I, I, can't, I can't do it. You saw that bit, though, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I laughed that hard. There were, or, you know, I think it's just because we were 11 years old and we had a juvenile sense of humor, but there were things like at the beginning when they says, Oh, who sneezed on the credits? Yeah. That made us laugh. That blew my mind seeing that. So, and just the idea that you could take a movie and recontextualize it in this way blew my mind. The movie version has a lot of sordid history about it. The fact that uh, it, studio executives were always meddling in the way that things were presented. They kept wanting it to move faster. Supposedly, this movie was originally pitched as like they were really going to expand the universe of MST3K. There was a version where they were going to have Dr. Forrester and, and Frank go to like the mad scientist convention in Las Vegas, or there was another version. Where Does was... anybody not know what MST3K, like the plot of the show is? Tell them. Which is that <laughs> it's a guy gets shot up into space and he's trapped on the satellite of love with a bunch of robots and an evil doctor is forcing them to watch movies. That is the plot. And of then the you movie. see the movie with their silhouettes in the bottom right corner, making fun of the movie. Yes. Providing humorous commentary. I assume if, since you're a <laughs> member of the planet earth, you know what the show is about. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, and the movie version, but they were also going to do a, mo- a version of the movie that was a, a musical. That would have been interesting. an all singing, dancing MST three K, and that was canceled because the James L. Brooks movie "All All Say Anything" or "I'll Do Anything." That was supposed to be a musical, but it tested so badly, they took all the music out. So instead, they made what looks like just another episode of the TV show. But but not even. No. Like, kind of a slicker, but shorter. It's only 73 minutes long, which is shorter than an actual episode of the show. Ugh, but it feels much longer than 73 minutes. So they made a decision of, like, what movie are you going to pick to do the movie version of this concept? And they went with This Island Earth, a film that... A lot of places, especially in sci-fi circles, is very well regarded. Mm-hmm. Has a very iconic monster in it. Super boring. It's very boring. I don't think it's that good a movie. No, but me, it, but it looks good. I watched it. Looks it looks really really slick. On my own once, when uh, me and a friend wanted to watch like fifty science fiction movies, and I picked this one, and woo, we found it quite a slog. But it's definitely got stuff in it that's respectable. I, I think. I mean, the reason they chose it was it was a Universal movie, yeah. so they needed to get a movie from the Universal Library. They needed something that was in color, and they needed something that kind of looked like a big screen movie. So none of your Manos, the Hands of Fates is. But I mean, the problem, the movie's just not quite bad enough. I mean, it's it's the, not enough stuff is happening for them to riff. It feels like. But also, this movie, like, it's not a bad choice as just sort of like a starter MST3K in the sense that it looks like the kind of movie that a modern audience would think is cheesy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, which is something that the critic Jonathan Rosenbaum objected to in the movie. Jonathan Rosenbaum gave this movie like a zero star review, kind of a famous pan where he said that. It it betrays this kind of unimaginative sensibility that anything that is old and uh, isn't you know doesn't look like our contemporary sensibilities is automatically bad. Um, and he also kind of harped on the fact that this film is has quite a, a lot of homophobic jokes. 
Which it does. It has too many. Yeah, it does. Um, and it also has a lot of scatological humor. Some of which is pretty good. <laughs> Some of it is, which is pretty yeah. good. Um, uh, I think one of the big problems with the movie is, so the intermission segments on MST3K have, like, you know... Unfunny skits. Yeah, they've never been great. I mean, some of them, I, I like some of them on the TV show in the Joel era. They have kind of a relaxed, uh, cheesy UHF quality to them. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the movie, it's supposed to look bigger and slicker, and they are thunderously unfunny. Oh my god, Painful. they are so unfunny. Well, you know what? It kept up with the um, the TV show where the skits are also painfully unfunny. <laughs> Um, I felt, you know, watching the Joel segments, like you said, there's that kind of in your garage kind of feel that makes them more fun. Yeah. But Mike, who I'd like to point out, won that marathon we did. I found his episodes and his riffs much funnier than Joel's. His skits are so, like, forced and, like, kind of, I don't know almost anti-comedy and the, they're not charming well the way i feel that like in, in the sci-fi channel era of the show where they had uh, pearl forester and bobo yeah that, i thought that whole subplot didn't work i it's it's almost kind of baffling at how unfunny those skits are and yeah. you know what a lot of fans of the tv show love those skits they're like it's part of the show you know I, I you have feel, to watch you know what? it i feel very fondly towards a lot of the skits <laughs> especially in the comedy central era the joel stuff yeah i i think a lot of them are kind of funny and have uh i like the, the i have a charm like reading letters on air yeah. of the mystery science theater uh fan club and stuff like that mm-hmm. that's fine it's just kind of like hanging out with people watching a movie but in this movie, Oof. in MST3K, the movie, they're pretty indefensible. And there's also kind of a tone to them where the movie feels as if it was made for people who have never seen the show before. So everything is just a little bit stilted and uh, everything's just a little bit off. Yeah. Um, not good. I really didn't have fun watching this movie. Really? Not, yeah. not at all? No. I, eh, I thought there were some good jokes here and there. It's uh, To me, it's kind of like a, a, a low mid-range episode of the show. Maybe not even, honestly, because a lot of the riffs... Uh, well... All the riffs are pretty dumbed down. It's, yeah. it's clearly made for like you know a mass audience, um, and the the riffs seem pretty sparse. Like there's a a point in the first scene of this island Earth where something like thirty seconds go by with no, no jokes. jokes, and you're like, what is going on? Like it has to be like joke, 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 unless someone is talking. That's how it works. But I would say like you know I think there are more laughs in this movie than there are in most movies, just by sheer law of averages. There, I guess, there, are, like... there are a ton of like jokes that are pretty good, but then there are also a lot of jokes that aren't that great. This is not what I would say. Despite my positive experience with it as an eleven year old, I would not point to this movie as being. Like uh, your, your your number one entry point for MST3K. No, yeah, I would recommend watching something like Space Mutiny, or um, what is it called? It's like Merlin's Shop of Wonders. Merlin's Shop of Mystical Wonders. Which that has, is an amazing episode. Which has one of my favorite jokes ever, which is "Believe in magic, or, or I'll, I'll kill, kill you." you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. But but. I mean, do you think there's anything to that idea that uh, they were being disrespectful to this island Earth and it had this kind of like snarky sensibility that's indefensible? I mean, the movie does. Uh, Like the movie feels that way Mm -hmm. that like they're laughing at the movie as opposed to with the movie, which they do in some of the other episodes, unless you have Joe Don Baker in it, Mm -hmm. in which case, man, they'll rip on Joe Don Baker. And, like, if I had seen this as, like, the starter MST3K movie, I think I would have had the reaction that I had already formed without watching that many episodes, which is, like, who are these guys making fun of this movie? Mm. Even though this movie's super boring. Um, One of my friends, Christian Murdoch, actually saw it in uh, cinemas when the Fox played it. 
the MSC3K, the movie. On like 35mm. Wow. It played with the other Toronto perennial clue. Oh, yeah. And um, uh, when the movie ended, I think he turned to the guy he was with and was like, oh, man, that sucked. I hate that movie. And the person in front of him turned around with such vitriol <laughs> to just like stare at him, which shows how... MSD3K has kind of formed this like cult around it, right? Like mm-hmm. people who love the show love this show. Yeah. And the question has to be asked, which is like, do they love it because they feel superior to the shit that they're making fun of? Or do they genuinely enjoy these things and like a bunch of friends like riffing on it? I think uh, a little column A, a little column B. I think it depends on the person somewhat. And I think that I'm, I mostly think that it's a lot of the former, especially in this kind of climate. Where it's easy to make fun of everything. But the thing about MST3K is it, it's a bit like Star Trek in its own way, where, it, like, even in, on its modest scale, it has kind of a dense universe with a lot of characters and a lot of callbacks. Um, like, there's a whole lineage of the Dr. Forrester family now. Uh, I would love to. Like, get... it, be, it becomes like an, a world that you get immersed in and can sort of quote unquote geek out over. They release, like, an annotated episode guide. Do you have it? Yeah, I do. Oh, you do? It's well, great. I would love to have that because that, mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff that I would love to dig into. Like, remember there was a Simpsons one with yeah. like, all the quotes and stuff like that yeah, yeah. and all the references that they make? It's good because the writing staff actually wrote it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, because, like, we see movies a lot, right? In theaters. Sure. And we see a lot of old movies. Mm-hmm. We see some bad movies. And what is more annoying than a fucking jackass in the back row making fun of a movie. Right. I, I hate those people. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Yeah. We saw Neil Breen's, the director of Fateful Findings, new movie, Path Through. And holy shit, did this entire audience think they were, like, the s- smartest, funniest person in the room. Yeah. And, like, the thing is, when someone says a joke in a movie or is making fun of a film, and it's not like you sitting on the couch with your friends, you're in a public space, don't laugh. Mm. That is like fuel to their fire to make more jokes. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I wasn't around in the 50s and 60s or 70s before Mystery Science Theater 3000 happened. I'm sure people made fun of movies all the time in cinemas. No, irony wasn't invented yet. Exactly. So, but I feel like Mystery Science Theater gives more kind of, you know, inspiration to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Hate the fans, not the band. I Exactly. That's right. And, and I don't hate the fans of Mr. Science Theater 3000. There's a lot of them that are super passionate, yeah. love these movies. There's just another avenue uh, to experience them. In. Yeah. But then there are some dilettantes. Yeah. Who are bad and, people. And it's like anything bad <laughs> is that the bad ones grow like 10,000 times yeah. in your eyes bigger than the good people. Uh, All right. So now let's move on to the real fun stuff. Which is the, the journals of Gene Seberg. I thought this movie was really beautiful. I loved it. Um, this is uh, by a filmmaker named Mark Rappaport, who did a series of movies in the '90s where he would take uh, clips and he, he would take clips from movies uh, centered around a certain personality and should have have somebody playing that personality narrate the movie and take you on kind of this walking tour through. Uh, not necessarily their lives, but like the stuff around them as well. And and their films and the context that the films were presented in. And kind of like Los Angeles plays itself, he would he would show you what the subtext of this person's body of work meant, mm-hmm. uh, what what the, what the meaning of them as an icon was. So he did Rock Hudson's home movies, which I find very moving. I think it's a great film. Yeah, uh, where Rock, a guy playing Rock Hudson, shows you all the clips of Rock Hudson's movies. This is after Rock Hudson who was thought of as this great masculine movie star, died of AIDS mm-hmm. and was revealed to be gay. And it's all about showing the sort of like queer subtext that could be read into Rock Hudson's movies. Um, this one, the journals of C- Gene Seberg, 
as you can probably guess, it's about Gene Seberg, played here by Mary Beth Hurt. Um, Gene Seberg being the star of Breathless and uh, uh, two Otto Preminger films. St. Joan and Bonjour Tristesse. Yeah. And the movie basically makes the argument that, well, it uses the quote from Jean-Luc Godard where he says that the history of film is the history of men photographing women. Mm Mm-hmm. That's basically the thesis of this film, where it suggests that Gene Seberg was essentially this kind of blank slate, um, this this cipher who was manipulated by various men, both as filmmakers and in her personal life, into whatever they wanted. And kind of not a lot of thought for who she was as a person. Uh, There's a really powerful moment where she was, where Mary Beth Hurt as Gene Seberg narrates a shot you see Gene Seberg staring at the camera and she says something words to the effect of I'm, I'm not Garbo. Don't tell me that there's nuance or complexity to this look. There's a coldness to this look. And basically you can project whatever you want onto it. And that was the shot from Breathless where she also mentions that Jolly Goddard wanted her character to go through the pockets of the dead hero played by Jean-Paul Belmondo and she just refused to do it. But, but yeah, did, did you like this movie? Yeah, I liked it, but I didn't love it. I found that its construction was very interesting, and I love the essay kind of through cinema Mm -hmm. stuff, but I found that as a character study, it didn't do as much for me as something like Rock Hudson's home movies did. I feel like the movie, because the thesis is essentially that Gene Seberg is a cipher, the movie isn't about Gene Seberg so much as it is about the place that women have played in film history. So it sort of shows how uh, sort of the retrograde attitudes... Towards women. People like Jane Fonda, Vanessa Redgrave, and it kind of chronicles their career and how they went from these women that were photographed in all their beauty and then just kind of tossed aside later on. Or it has somebody like Jane Fonda who, you know, her credentials as a great actress were pretty much unquestioned, but... uh, it points out that, yeah, she started as Barbarella, sort of this sex kitten, graduated to being the great actress, but um, her relationship with vietnam yeah never quite left her in the way that even somebody like richard nixon was able to reemerge as a as a distinguished public figure and that's completely related to the fact that she is a woman right and that's the easiest and then even after becoming an academy award winner she's in the 80s doing these uh fitness tapes these Mm -hmm. these workout tapes where the camera is always leering on her ass yeah. and stuff. As uh, Jean Seberg herself says in the narration, why is it zooming in on her crotch? What yeah. is there information <laughs> there that we couldn't get from a wide shot? Yeah. Uh, or then there are, you know, we, you, you learn a little bit about Jean Seberg's personal life where uh, she's in this film directed by one of her ex-husbands where she plays the sort of like nymphomaniac who can't climax during sex. And, and it, it talks about how, you know, think of all these women who uh, were directed by their lovers or their husbands in these weird degrading movies. Mm-hmm. And the whole film centers around the fact that her husband has to make sure she doesn't become a nymphomaniac again, yeah. because if she does, then he'll kill her. Or there's another movie where she plays somebody who's uh, in an insane asylum, but it talks about how the way that women can be insane in a movie is so different from the way men are insane like women it's almost like particularly in this time it's like a manic pixie dream girl yeah it's like splendor in the grass or like they usually like sex craze and they just want to be loved anyway the movie ends very tragically with her because of her support for the black panthers her basically being hounded into an early grave by the fbi Mm -hmm. um it's just an interesting movie the idea of 
using reappropriating film for film criticism, basically. And like recontextualizing it just based from those clips. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you're not actually going to get a lot of insight on about, I mean, you're going to get some insight about Gene Seberg's biography, mm-hmm. but it's really an essay on Gene Seberg. Uh, I mean, Mystery Science Theater, the movie, is also an act of film criticism, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you, so do you, you really enjoy these kind of like essay type films by people like Michael Rappaport? Yeah, very much so. Jean Luc Godard? Sometimes. <laughs> or or Los Angeles Place itself, which yeah, is... the famous movie, finally released on Blu-ray last year. Yeah, kind of an interesting uh, history of the way that Los Angeles has been depicted in films and basically trying to show how these films have ideologically treated Los Angeles. Uh, you know, sometimes it goes down some alleys that I think are questionable. But, but what do you think something like YouTube has brought to the these like essay-type films and recontextualization of clips? Well, it's democratized the form. I mean, well, I mean... It's just interesting that everybody is recontextualizing movies now. I mean, it all seems to go into this big, big soup. I mean, well, Jean-Luc Godard, his Histoire du Cinéma, one of the things that you could you could read from it is his idea that there are no individual films. There's just one long film. All of film history is one big film. And so whether whether it's, you know, whether it's Chaplin or Griffith or a porno movie, they're all there in this big stew. <laughs> and they're all worth as much as the other one. Well, you know, I, I guess that's questionable, but that seems to be what Godard is implying. But, but I mean, the internet has sort of added to that sense that film history is this big stew that anybody that anything can be dumped into it, which is fine. Yeah, I mean, they can be utilized for things like comedy, like YouTube poops, mm-hmm. or they can be utilized for things like all the crazy conspiracy theories, like sure. Infowars or stuff like that. Or you know, it's interesting. Somebody like, I mean, I'm not a fan, but somebody like the Nostalgia Critic. Yes, like his his reviews, which will be like 45 minutes long. Like, fully a third of them will be clips from a movie. Like, you'll see a giant chunk of the movie if you see one of his reviews. So it almost feels like a new version of that. It feels like an annotated version of that film. Mm -hmm. Like, you can watch one of his reviews and basically have seen the movie. And I feel that's interesting, but at the same time, that kind of takes the viewer out of the equation when it comes to actually experiencing the work of art. Because, like, most of the people watching those nostalgic uh, critic reviews are going to watch his thing and not see the movie. Yeah. Whether it's good or not. Yeah. I, I don't know how I feel about that. Like Super Mario Brothers, you should watch the movie. Don't watch the Nostalgia Critic review. <laughs> yeah. uh, you have some experience in creating a recontextualized film. I did. So um, at uh, the Film Screening Society, Laser Blast Film Society, I really wanted to play a Keiju film. So that's like a giant monster movie, usually from Japan. Mm-hmm. And I had difficulty finding one that no one had seen. So when I finally found one, didn't have subtitles. Mm-hmm. So I went, all right, I'm going to completely bastardize this director's vision, which was uh, had already been footage that this Thai director had shot and stolen from a Japanese TV show called Cayman K- Rider. And I'm just going to make my own story. So, uh, and write subtitles. I didn't go to the lengths of like redubbing it or anything like that. Way too much work. I don't have time for that. Yeah. So what I ended up doing was, I mean, when you're talking about recontextualizing a piece of work, there's a lot of stuff that you can do. You can either just, like, make wacky jokes the entire time, like, oh, my butt, or oh, my balls, and stuff like that. And, you know, I was, you know, inching toward that. But instead, the work that I did is an incredibly personal (laughs) uh, meditation on making movies and how difficult it is and stuff like that. Yeah. And if the question of, was it difficult... Nah, not really. Because you you turned Hanuman and the Five Riders into a story about people trying to make a movie. Yeah, trying to make a movie, and I cut it down from an hour and forty minutes to seventy minutes. Because because you know Justin can't just like turn in a bit of hack work. Like everything he makes has to like have his heart and soul. 
Just, I mean, Justin's a man who wears his heart on his sleeve. <laughs> I laugh all the time to he, keep from crying. He he bleeds cinema. Um, whereas people like me lock up our emotions <laughs> in in an icy vat. But it was really interesting to do. Um, it was really uh, nerve wracking to show it in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. But you know, some people seem to enjoy it. But you understand the limitations of this form, where it's like there's only so far you can take it before you're like, all right, come on, let's go. I definitely felt that with What's Up, Tiger Lily this time. Yeah. Uh, Where you're like, I get the joke. Yeah. (laughs) Like, let's move on. Yeah. Um, So as far as recontextualizing goes, I feel that the place in the world that it has now is even bigger than it ever has been. But at the same time, it means so much less. Yeah. I don't even know what it means anymore. Why did we even do this? (laughs) Uh, What are we going to do next week? Um, We're going to be doing uh, another episode of Recontextualizing Cinema. (laughs) <laughs> we're gonna be doing Kung Pao, or, or no? We should do uh, we should do those Dead Men Don't Wear Plates. We should do those Three Stooges movies where after Shemp died, where they took a bunch of stock footage of the Shemp shorts, and then they had another guy play Shemp from the back for the new scenes. <laughs> what does this mean as far as the Three Stooges um, body of work? Well, I I love those shorts because like Shemp was Moe's brother, and I love just just the idea that like Moe, his brother, having just died, is now forced. <laughs> to interact with this guy who is not Shemp. So do you think these are the most emotional Three Stooges shorts? I I think so, because there are scenes in all of them in the new footage where Larry will be like, hey, where's Shemp? And he's like, I don't know, where's Shemp? Oh, Shemp left a note for us. Gone out shopping. Hmm. And then they just go on with it. And like one lone tear rolls down. And like you're thinking, oh, Shemp's dead. (laughs) (laughs) And and Mo knows it. (laughs) Anyway, what are we doing next week? We're going to be doing uh, Catherine Breard. Uh, sure. a Canadian director. Catherine Breyer. <laughs> That's not what I said. Why do you always make it sound like I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> I don't know. With Catherine Breyer. Yeah, she's a French director. Yes. Yeah. Isn't she from Canada? Is she? I don't know. We'll find. I don't think. I didn't think so. <laughs> All right, let's do two versions. <laughs> <laughs> like Clue. Yeah. <laughs> she's either from France or from Canada. Obviously, we know almost nothing about her. We'll find out next time. This is this is us <laughs> desperately trying to do a female director and get out of ourselves for once. For us once just stumbling. Lives. Is it going to end with us being like, "Why did we do this? We have nothing to share on the subject." No, I think I think we'll from be from the male perspective. It. So we're going to be doing Anatomy of Hell and Fat Girl. Oh, uh, we're going to do Fat Girl? I don't know. Why not? Yeah, that's her most famous film. Yeah. Banned in Canada for a long time. Yeah. Now, you're right. She's probably not Canadian. <laughs> I don't know. I'm think thinking so. about it. We, if she were Canadian, we would know it. Yeah, I think. She'd be on all those, like, best Canadian lists all the time. Yeah, and, she, and she'd be at the light box doing in conversations with... Yeah, uh, and no, she's not. So, this French director from France. This is this is the uh, <laughs> the craftsmanship you can expect from the employees of the club. This is the... The research <laughs> that we're, you know, finally we're going back and we're tackling a female director. I'm actually going to fire our army of interns who told you that she was Canadian. <laughs> I don't know where I got this idea that she was Canadian from. Because we have French people in Canada. Yeah, and maybe I was desperately trying to find a culturally rev- re- relevant female director making work in Canada. So I just, you know, grabbed onto her. Deepa Mena, man. We yeah, got, we got a Sarah Polly. Yeah, we got a ton. Um, but, I, you know, you can never have too many. Wow. What a, what a bold stance. <laughs> My name's Justin Glenn. You know, I don't even want to say who I am because Justin is such a hero that I'm just going to leave it to him. Good night, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> oh.